Hello there, and welcome to another Argus Data Freight podcast, where we discuss developments in the markets and their relationships with the shipping sector. My name is Andrew Kaw. I'm the Asia-Pacific Freight Editor, and joining me today is Wilson Wirawan, the Drivalt Team Lead Maritime Analyst from BRS Singapore. This podcast is going to focus on the escalating tensions and their impact on trade routes, freight costs, and the overall market outlook for the dry bulk freight segment. So Wilson, um, let's start off with this. Can you give us a rundown of the impact of the escalating tensions in the Red Sea? Uh, thank you, Andrew, for inviting me. So let me just give a brief rundown. So actually, up to early January this year, uh, tankers and bulkers were essentially considered the least risky units with containers and LNG, uh, really acting like the prime targets. And back then, charterers were still sending the uh, bulkers through the Red Sea on the basis that as long as it's not Israel affiliated. Uh, but how quickly this risk equation flipped by the time we reached mid of January, when even US interest uh, bulkers were assaulted post airstrikes in Yemen. And in a further thought experiment, uh, should the assaults claim its first, unfortunately to say, its first uh, seafarer casualty, or maybe we have an oil spill, then the repercussions would further convolute trading and ballasting uh, patterns. Uh, that's really interesting, uh, Wilson. So tying into that, the Panama Canal hasn't had the smoothest year in 2023 as well. So there has been some redirection of vessels into the Suez Canal. Mm. How much of an impact do you think that has on the current situation? So that is a good uh, question. So as we can see, uh, this is a very interesting times we are living in. In the short span of three to six months, we have both the Panama Canal and the Suez Canal uh, giving troubles to ship owners. So let's start off with the Panama Canal. And actually, the Panama Canal offers a sneak peek into how potent canal restrictions uh, could be. Because of the uh, drought in the Panama, we have seen U.S. Gulf grains, instead of uh, transiting through uh, the Panama Canal, it has went instead uh, to the Suez Canal, especially in Q3 and Q4. And that caused a really serious uh, disruption to the Atlantic uh, tonnage uh, uh, profile. And this allowed the Atlantic Basin to uh, print a very strong premium against the Pacific uh, Basin. And that single-handedly pulled up the average uh, freight rates for the geared barkers Supramax to handy size. And on average, uh, these two vessel class uh, printed $15,000. Uh, in December, and this types of numbers is only last seen back in 2021 when we all know uh, the container market had an overspill effect, uh, which is very, very rare. So, heading over to the Red Sea, if we compare the scale in terms of aggregate cargo intake and the scope in terms of diversity of trade flows of the Panama Canal and the Suez Canal, uh, the latest is actually far more significant on both counts. While the Panama Canal handled approximately 80 million metric tons of dry cargo in 2023, the dry throughput of the Suez Canal was around 30, uh, 333 million metric tons. And additionally, uh, dry shipments through the Suez Canal originates from uh, certain uh, regions or more varied regions, notably from the Black Sea and the Eastern Mediterranean, and largely head to India and China. In contrast, quite a significant number of dry-laden transits through the Panama Canal is solely come from the US. Thanks for that, Wilson. So you mentioned trades from the Black Sea um, and how it's more varied going through the Suez Canal. So how do you think trades are going to shift around at this point? 
this is a very interesting uh, question that we can break it down via different uh, angles. So uh, just to get a broad base uh, picture, we believe that the Atlantic Basin will print higher numbers than the Pacific. And within the Atlantic, uh, North Atlantic should have the potential to go even higher uh, due to the fact that a lot of uh, ballasters that transit through the Suez Canal is intended for North Atlantic uh, businesses. And in, within the North Atlantic businesses, uh, Russia cargoes uh, plays a very important factor. And when we talk about the source of ballasters, uh, usually it's coming from India. So we have vessels uh, discharging in India, whether it's Cape Size, Panamax and the Giat Barkers. They are the first and most important source uh, for any Russian origins uh, shipments. And then uh, moving on, we can talk about uh, different countries. And recently, uh, the Houthi have come out and expressly stated that uh, any Russian or Chinese interest cargoes will not be uh, attacked. So assuming we hold the word, their word for it, or it actually means something, then we could we should actually split uh, between Russian or maybe non-Russian uh, cargoes. So going down that track, we further uh, can split it down to the various vessel size. So Cape size, we're actually seeing uh, Canada iron ore and USA coking coal. And if you go down to the mini barkers and the supramax, obviously it will be US uh, coking coal that will be facing some uh, disruption. So all in all, uh, the situation will be uh, material to any potential freight upside and that is reflected in the current uh, FFA uh, market. And, but that said, uh, we still see uh, in the FFA market, um, Q2 is being priced at a strong premium to Q4. So this suggests that the market is still uncertain how would this uh, situation evolve. But if uh, we were to be a slightly a pessimistic uh, person and say that maybe this uh, crisis would stretch to the end of at least to the end of the year, that means that could be a potential upside in Q4 also that could be exploited. And uh, if you go down to the freight strategy, that also means that uh, operators who are getting short periods vessels in right now, um, the value of, uh, of extension by the end of that uh, vessel redel at Q3, if they can be able to have the option to extend into Q4, and if the situation continues to escalate with the freight rates going up in tandem, I think that's where uh, the exciting opportunities could be. Uh, those are really good points, Wilson. So I guess the takeaway from that is that if you do have any particular short period mm. vessels, having the option to cross into Q4 would mm. likely be something that uh, people can, uh, you know, price around. Yes, uh, because uh, the thing that in shipping, we tend to be very focused on uh, the present. and But if you have to uh, take a much wider picture, uh, we can see that... Uh, Q4 is actually where the opportunity uh, really, really lies because uh, if you look at the last few uh, years, uh, second half of the year is usually stronger than the first half of the year. But what is what we are seeing right now is because due to the headline news regarding of the rate, see people are trying to price in most, most of the risk in the front months or the front quarters and lacking to have the guts to maybe beat into uh, the second half of the year. And that actually also boils down to your assessment whether the situation would get worse. And we do believe, bearing any um, change, uh, we do not think this situation could be uh, satisfactorily resolved in, in the near term. Because 
what we're actually seeing right now, it's a symptom of a lack of uh, effective American uh, deterrence in the region and it's seen as a vulnerability to be exploited uh, by people, of course, in the Middle East. And this is exemplified by the removal of the terrorist designation for Houthis fighters early in President Joe Biden's presidency. And Iran, which is the backer of Houthis, have intensified nuclear enrichment activities and drone development since Biden took office. And the lax enforcement of existing sanctions by the Biden administration has enabled Iran to export record amounts of oil, including substantial sales to China. So, hence, from a bird's eye view, uh, unless the US can effectively undertake its role as a global enforcer of international rule-based order, coupled with help from China, then the freedom of navigation in the Red Sea cannot be taken for granted. And exception applies, as we mentioned, that uh, Houthi leaders have said that Russian and Chinese vessels will be guaranteed safe passage, which might imply China will be less incentivized to collaborate with the US to quickly resolve this uh, emergency, unfortunately. Okay, got it, Wilson. So going back into that, I mean, if the Houthi leaders have basically said that they are guaranteeing uh, movements from Russia and from China, um, how are ship owners reacting to that? Are they still going through with it um, with happy to go through the canal or have they started to reject? Has the crew shown any defiance against that order? Now, this is actually quite a tricky <coughs> question, right? Because I think it depends on the, whether the situation um, escalates. So, uh, for example, uh, at the start of the year, we still have uh, ship owners deciding that it's still worth the risk uh, to go. And different ship owners have different risk appetite, right? So there will always be people who is ready to take the daredevil act and uh, conduct businesses. So we can see notably last year during the Russian and uh, Ukraine war, right? And But moving forward, I think most of the A1 uh, operators or ship owners will decide to move away from the Red Sea. And if you couple with the fact of increasing uh, insurance premium plus the double or doubling of crew wages, I think it will make the decision even more easier. And not to forget that uh, optics also matter a lot. So if the crew safety were to become in question, and as I go, uh, mentioned before, if this situation were to claim, unfortunately, its first civilian uh, casualty, then I think uh, where people would choose to direct their ships uh, would be quite clear. And as of now, we have been seeing, um, it's been reported, right, that uh, it's for the first time, uh, Suez Canal is free of LNG, it's free of uh, car carriers. So it might take some time, but I think if the situation were to escalate, I don't think it's a scenario we can categorically uh, dismiss. After all, a lot of the prevailing uh, assessment tend to fail, not because of a failure of uh, analysis, but due to the failure of imagination. I mean, think about it. Uh, within two weeks or three weeks of the this thing happening, uh, Tesla come out and say that, hey, we are suspending our productions of car in uh, in Europe. It's like it doesn't. Uh, people won't thought about it, but when it happened, with hindsight, people will not be surprised. But this is the currently the situation that uh, unfortunately uh, ship owners have to deal with. But uh, that was, but uh, shipping has always thrived in periods of instability and despite the additional rerouting distances, shipping will still be uh, pound for pound uh, the most cost-effective uh, transportation mode. Understood. 
Thanks, Wilson. I, I think that's a, that's those are really good points. Um, just to bring and give our listeners a little bit of context as well. So if we're look, talking about shipments from India going through the Suez Canal into places like the Mediterranean, Black Sea, um, if a ship were to travel or traverse um, through the Cape of Good Hope, we're actually looking at about 20 or 25 days increment mm. um, in voyage length. Mm. Um, so that's pretty significant. And I think that adds on to the point that you said that everyone's pretty much pricing this into current times and there is opportunity and, and uh, something to be said for, for um, Q3 and Q4 as well. Um, and interestingly, you did mention China. Mm-hmm. Um, so previously, there has been a lot of talks, um, uh, broadly speaking, that China is slowing down. Mm-hmm. Um, we, but if we look at their import volumes for 2023, we, we would see a commendable level for that. Mm. So what do you make of this uh, in 2024? Uh, this is quite a controversial uh, topic to make about, but I will do my best to kind of uh, expand on that. So actually, we have to take ourselves back to 2022, right? So back then, when Beijing started to ease its uh, straight COVID-0 policy in the final months of 2022, uh, there was a lot of hopes. And while according to official Chinese data, the GDP of the world's second largest uh, economy grew by 5.2%, uh, actually it was not all plain sailing as China had to grapple with a growing list of overseas and domestic challenges that's well documented, including persistent youth unemployment and deflation. And in contrast, uh, the United States, which is expected to achieve a modest GDP growth of 2 to 3%, in fact like 2.5% if I last remember, was contending with labor shortages and rampant inflation. So this really presents a stark dichotomy between the two economic and political heavyweights. But nonetheless, as uh, we want to uh, expand on the dry bar, uh, imports uh, trend, following two consecutive uh, annual declines, around 2% apiece, Chinese dry bar imports in 2023 had, without, uh, without doubt, been one of the best years in recent memory, registering quite a spectacular growth of 11.6% according to recent uh, data. Uh, tracking data. So it will be mindful that some of these volumes are actually due to speculative uh, demand, right, out of the uh, COVID reopening. And these are unlikely to be repeated in 2024. But that aside, moving forward, how do we reconcile this mixed signaling between the Chinese widely publicized uh, deteriorating economic outlook and its latest improving dry uh, dry import appetite? So let's break down the China's uh, annual dry import volumes into two distinct periods. So first, we have the 2015 to 2018, right? Because 2015, it was the lowest point of the dry market, if some of us still remember, to the black uh, to the pre-precursor of black swan events. So what are these black swan events, right? It includes the US-China trade war, the global COVID lockdowns, the container bonanza that we talked about earlier on, and unprecedented Chinese uh, port congestion back in 2021. And then, of course, in 2022, we have the Russian-Ukraine conflicts and all this stuff, up-end demand and supply freight fundamentals. Then we look at the second period, 2018 to 2023, which is uh, the post-Black Swan events to current uh, date. And we can observe that from 2015 to 2018, uh, China's growth in dry bulk was a annual growth rate of 6.2%. But when we transit to 2018 to 2023, the annual growth rate has slipped to a more modest uh, 4.2%. So it is evident that China's dry import prospects have not truly returned to its pre-2018 
trajectory. And despite the massive year-on-year jump, right, uh, 11.6%, they are still trailing behind their original growth path with a expected shortfall of 215 uh, million metric tons. So because of this headline 11.6 uh, year-on-year growth in total drive-up imports, uh, some comment, uh, commentaries have surmised that maybe the dry market or the Cape size market might be disconnected from the real estate, uh, Chinese real estate market, right? But we believe it's a bit premature to come to such a definitive uh, statement as in an alternative scenario, if the Chinese real estate market had been up and roaring, uh, healthy Chinese steel margins should have spurred the mills to produce more to capitalize on the higher profitability. Yet, it is open knowledge that the mills margin have weakened significantly since late 2021 or early 2022, which coincides with the decline in the property sector. So, in, in addition, parts of the steel production in China which cannot be digested by local demand have found their way into international markets. And according to Access Marine data, Chinese steel exports year-on-year have improved by a whooping 30%. So obviously, the decline in China real estate market is impacting the drive-up market, just not in terms of absolute uh, negative decline, but functioning more as a longer-term headwind on growth appetite. Okay, got it, Wilson. So I guess just to kind of round things up, it's mainly that China is actually slowing down if we're looking at it at, at a growth metric. Mm. Um, but ultimately, they are still growing, just not as much as fast as some people expected. Yes, it's, they're just not growing as fast as expected. And we believe that in 2024, a good year would be simply a year whereby risk remain risk and the camp is just down the route. So, and we set aside the external impact of the canal disruptions that we have discussed quite uh, extensively earlier on. Uh, the likelihood of a decent year in 2024 just hinges that China ensures its real estate market stay intact. And that coupled with the limited vessel deliveries which have been quite discussed over the last few years and slower laden spe uh, steaming due to CI ratings. And of course, we have the occasional freight spreads, right, due to tonnage imbalance, as demonstrated by Cape Size back in late November and December. All these things should be sufficient to eke up respectable gains. And if there's any further upside, that will obviously be due to the fact of the canal disruption. That is a big question mark that everyone will be discussing over the next uh, few months. Got it. Thanks very much, Wilson. So just to wrap things up, there is definitely potential for drive-out freight rates to move up given all the points we discussed today, especially if tensions continue to escalate. But it is important to remember, as Wilson said earlier in the podcast, that the evolution of the market and its possible outcomes may not be due to a failure of analysis, but possibly due to a failure of imagination. With that, I'd like to say thank you very much to all of our listeners who have stayed with us till the end. I hope it was insightful. Details on Argus Freight Services are available on the Argus Media website and our daily assessments and commentaries can be found on our reports. Further freight content is, of course, freely available on the Argus Weight of Freight website. Until then, take care.